to humans, wake up, wise up, do what you can, individually and together. Hello, Hannah here. Welcome to the Earth to Humans podcast. When I was doing an internship at a conservation charity during my degree, I was given the pretty epic task of writing blogs about conservation heroes, trailblazing people whose life's purpose it was to save the world's wildlife and wild places. When conducting research, I discovered Dr Laurie Marker, founder of the Cheetah Conservation Fund. This charismatic, devoted woman blew my mind, and after discovering that she was, in fact, visiting Bristol for a lecture, I hurriedly contacted her team to ask for an interview. Her passion and knowledge astounded me, as well as her focus on holistic approaches to conservation. She's a true innovator, and the work of the charity she has built is so heavily community-focused that both people and nature are benefiting massively off of the work that it does. Cut to 11 years later, and I've now been working as the digital lead for the UK affiliate of CCF for three years. It was a real pleasure for me to join two of the organisations I work with together for this episode. With the work of CCF being heavily centred around shutting down the illegal wildlife trade, I also invited the organisation's illegal wildlife trade lead, Dr Shira Yashva, along to give us a more in-depth understanding of what's going on. I hope you find these two female scientists as inspiring and motivating as I do. I'm joined by Dr. Laurie Marker and Dr. Shara Yashve of CCF, which is the Cheetah Conservation Fund, for those who don't know. So these people work on the front line saving cheetahs from extinction. It's a, a cause that's very, very close to my heart, having been loosely affiliated with the organisation for around 10 years now. So what I would like to know from you guys is, firstly, we'll start with Laurie. So CCF actually celebrated its 30th year quite recently. So what I would love to know is what the history of CCF, like how was it started? How did you fall in love with cheetahs to a point of dedicating over 30 years of your life to it? Yeah, could you tell us some more? Sure, I'll try to keep it short because um, my history goes back long. Um, I started working with cheetahs back in the early 1970s at a wildlife park in Oregon. And we were one of the only places really in the world that had cheetahs and that were actually successfully breeding cheetahs and uh, in captivity. And at that point in time, when I got involved, nobody really knew much about cheetahs and they fascinated me. And I wanted to know everything there was to know about them, which is, I guess, what I set out to do. And I ended up in Namibia in the middle of the 1970s. And I found out that farmers were killing cheetahs for vermin like flies. I mean, hundreds of them every year. And I thought somebody should stop that. Well, push 
later, um, 30 years, well, 20 years later, I set up the Cheetah Conservation Fund after conducting lots of research, not only in genetics, um, reproductive physiology with our colleagues from the National Zoo and National Cancer Institute, uh, and found out cheetahs lack genetic diversity and we were losing them in the wild and they didn't breed well in captivity. And gee, we're losing the species. Who's going to do something? And so I set up the Cheetah Conservation Fund 30 years ago and uh, 32 years ago at this point, and moved to Namibia right after its independence, starting working with farmers. And the issue here was about human-wildlife conflict. Farmers throughout all of the cheetah range country actually kill cheetahs because they catch their livestock. And so try to understanding that, trying to work with the farming community here to figure out ways that we could stop the killing. And so that's really what got me involved in what we do. And it kind of keeps going because today there's less than 7,500 cheetahs left in the world. They're found only in about 23 countries of which half of those populations are under 200 individuals. So very, very, very small. In other areas, so we've got habitat loss, human wildlife conflict problems, genetic problems, and that of illegal wildlife trade, which is the latest over the last 15 years problem, and it's growing and we're much more involved in it, which is what we want to talk with you today about. So we're now based also not only in Namibia, up in the Horn of Africa in Somaliland, where we've had to set up a base. And um, from there, we're dealing with confiscated animals that are en route to the Middle East or other places um, to satisfy the illegal wildlife pet trade. That's my nutshell. <laughs> a lot of years in a in a small nutshell, and I know there's so much more to be said. Um, so I'm just going to go over to you, Cheryl. As Dr. Marcus just touched on the illegal wildlife trade, which is a real prevalent, current, ongoing threat to wild cheetahs, and I know that that's your area of specialism and where your role within CCF lies. So do you want to just talk about what your what your role is and why you were brought in, and a bit more information about the trade? Right, of course. Yeah, so basically we, I started at CCF, I think it's, wow, it's been already about three years, I think. Yeah. So I come from a very different background. I'm a veterinary doctor and I treated domestic animals um, in the beginning. Um, We'll go over how you go from A to B at a later point. But when I came to CCF, it was because I did uh, do the transition to wildlife conservation and started focusing more and more on international policy and then wildlife crime policy and then eventually also enforcement more and more because I just realized that it is an emerging threat to wildlife and it's a threat that is not tackled or the strategies uh, to tackle it are not as advanced as as they are for human wildlife conflict all the you know habitat loss which I'm not saying we know what to do with that yet completely either but wildlife crime was definitely an emerging threat. So when I did my career transition, I decided to focus on that. And then I was brought into CCF to support with, yes, exactly with this kind of emerging threat that they were um, uh, dealing with, which Dr. Marker and the team had been dealing with, yeah, over 10 years, even before I arrived. And it was definitely something that we saw that these cubs are being poached from source countries, uh, mostly in East Africa, Horn of Africa. So it could be Ethiopia, Somalia, uh, Somaliland, and then traffic to the Middle East, to the Arabian Peninsula, mostly. It could be to other countries as well. Uh, and the original thought was that it's mostly for the exotic uh, pet trade market. So for buyers that want an 
And it's funny because, you know, we, we look at Instagram and Facebook and it's so much part of our life, but we don't realize how it could be a driver for something like um, the disappearance of a species. So these, a lot of, of, of these influencers or these people were taking these animals to post with them to, you know, it's a status symbol, et cetera. As we were diving deeper into this threat and also learning a lot of best practices from other species being uh, trafficked, we realized that like anything in life, things are more complex. So the motivation for poaching in the source country and then what's happening in demand countries is a lot more complex. There is human wildlife conflict that is coming into play here. So the source populations that could be also poor communities, if there's any predation on their livestock or anything from these predators, these are predators after all. So they might be, you know, might tend more to poach the cubs. And then if they know there's a market to sell them, then they would be much more inclined to sell them. So then we realized that we are actually positioned in the nexus of the wildlife crime trade. Again, by invitation, uh, Dr. Marco was invited to help Somaliland in the early years of this. And we have a lot of the skills or all the skills needed. A, we have the opportunity to give there was a gap in what to do with these cubs because it's live cubs. Then if you confiscate them, you don't put them right in a locker in an evidence locker. You need to actually supply them with welfare, veterinary medicine, et cetera. So we have that knowledge and capacity and we build safe houses in a sanctuary to actually hold them and support the government in Somaliland for that. And then we also have the knowledge on international policy, how to work, you know, the entire international apparatus to raise awareness and push other countries and blocks like IGAD, GCC to work, you know, with us against the trade. And of course, we can support with anything that has to do with all those drivers, the human wildlife conflict, community work on source countries. And now we're also delving deeper and deeper into demand countries, working hand in hand with the Middle Eastern countries as well. So yeah, that was kind of the what we were trying to do. Uh, the trade is still something that we're, is very challenging and we keeps, you know, we need to monitor what's happening with any new initiative that you do. You always need to know what's the impact, but yeah, that was kind of how we started on uh, with the wildlife crime work uh, since, since I began, of course, there was um, work done before. Monitoring how you're doing with yeah. shutting down illegal wildlife trade of cheetah cubs must be a really complicated uh, metric to try and quantify. Can you explain how you're working on that? And I think a lot of what we've looked at um, is similar to how we looked at working with the farming communities around human wildlife conflict. Why? What's going on? And so you end up kind of sussing out, you know, different issues around you know, personalities, why people want them, what's the basis on it. And I think that that's a really an important part. I mean, sure, you can go forward on that then, too. No, Laurie is completely correct. So I think the, and again, this is maybe the uniqueness of CCF. And that was also my background, why I even learned about wildlife crime and was so interested in that is that it is humans at the end of the day, right? So every problem that we have, every environmental problem that we have is human driven. And CCF and Dr. Marker, when, like you said, with the background and anything that right? Like Gloria, anything you did 30 years ago, even in Namibia is human driven, try to understand the humans behind it, whether it's in the source or in the demand. So when you're looking at this trade, you also look at behaviors of people, motivations, barriers to change. And when you also try to then monitor the impact or either plan interventions against it or monitor the impact, those factors come in. And what we know is yes, with monitoring, it's a very difficult metric to, to measure. 
because we know that this is illicit activity, right? So it's it's tip of the iceberg what we're seeing. So basically what we're seeing is that it's a tip of the iceberg effect. So anything that we will see either even on open source, right? If we see sales or advertisements in social media or, and we can maybe then monitor, maybe there's less advertisements and then we can see a trend of less buying or less selling or less putting it out there as a social status. But that would be only the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot of people that won't post or that would post in secret group that we won't see. So it is a very, very difficult metric to, to measure and the same goes for confiscation. So we see confiscations in Somaliland because we take these cubs, right, and hold them and provide emergency and lifelong care for them. But for every one that is confiscated, there's at least four or five that are missed. So, yes, this is a very difficult metric. You need to keep monitoring. You need to have close connections with the governments, which we spent years building these good relationships with. And um, you need to, yeah, just constantly be looking at all the different parameters to see if where are the trends. And you could learn sometimes also from other species trends, because sometimes there are connections between different wildlife crimes. Although cheetah trade is very, very unique. It's live trade, which is very different. It requires different handling, different methods of concealment of a live animal than, you know, ivory, et cetera. So you're right. That's, that is one of our biggest, biggest challenges. And uh, the other thing I think we do is partnerships. So we always look for partnerships and new ways to measure and uh, partnerships, whether it could be with traffic, you know, DC, like entities that have a lot of experience and have access to, to knowledge and abilities. There's actually now a hackathon uh, that we're going to participate in, that we're actually looking to bring this problem of monitoring of impact assessment to uh, developers and programmers. So help us monitoring open source data. Uh, and instead of us doing it manually, try to monitor it and tell us what you're seeing in the news and in Facebook and build an algorithm for us, which would pick it up a lot easier in different languages. So yeah, it's definitely a very complex topic, but very interesting one. Yeah. Absolutely. And obviously, you've touched on support that you're receiving from various different parties. But I just wondered, I remember when I first started working with CCF, I was actually able to go on Facebook and type in cheetahs for sale, and it would come up with sales posts like this is going back years ago now. If you type that in now, then it's it comes up with a kind of barrier. And it says like, this is not okay. But obviously, the people who are searching for cheetahs for sale are not searching cheetahs for sale. So something else is going on. I just wondered how much and if if at all, any support CCF are receiving from these um, social media platforms to actually help whistleblow or to shut down these groups where there are cheetahs for sale. Yeah. So there's actually, there's the, I think they're called the Coalition to End Wildlife Trafficking Online. I want to make sure that I get their name right. That's coalition with WWF, Traffic, IFA. There's a coalition that is working with these local, uh, so, um, global platforms. And I think, yeah, what you notice, for instance, those posts, like if you even try to post something that Instagram would give you that pop-up, there is a lot more warning that you shouldn't do that maybe uh, there's a lot more awareness and a lot more, uh, I guess, in a sense, willingness to look into this in the big social media companies, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, et cetera. But we have we still have two main challenges, I would say. A, it requires will and resources from these companies to really, you know, scan the Internet. Like we said, you need to scan it. You need to have people look at the posts, want to 
put, take them down. It, it does take resources. I'm not saying these companies don't have the resources, of course, but it does take that. Um, and I know that we're not there yet. There's much work to do. And then on the other side, we have the problem of there's always like in any illicit activity, you shut one door, then another you know, window opens. So you would shut the Facebook post on the, there and WhatsApp. So you shut up the WhatsApp groups there and Snapchat. You should shut that up. So, and TikTok, like every, we also have a lot of new social media, right? Um, platforms coming up. So it does require this very coordinated response and this very coordinated understanding of social media platforms out there, what or whatever they are, that it's all of our responsibilities. It shouldn't be only conservationists like Lori, myself, looking at this. This is all of our natural resources, and it's important for all of us to work together on this and 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 do whatever is possible. So there is, as I said, there is that coalition of NGOs that are working very closely with these companies trying to work uh, to raise awareness. And we're also supporting that as much as we can. There's still, still still work to be done. And I guess anybody that's listening to this that wants to kind of support that work, if there is a moment online where you see something that you don't think is right, and it looks like there is an endangered species being featured in a selfie or something like that, that you don't, that doesn't seem okay, that is a, there's an opportunity there to report it to the social media platform and be part of this fight against legal wildlife trade. I mean, there's no, it, it's not always that black and white, but obviously there is that opportunity to be able to use your browsing for good. <laughs> right. And I think it's, again, what Laurie was saying is that it's all about people. We all know that, especially big companies, you know, whether it would be Facebook, uh, it, it doesn't matter which which companies these are, they're affected by their consumers. So the more consumers put out there that this is not acceptable and share that, you know, this is this is something I don't want to see anymore on my feed. I'm sure that it would help them allocate the you know necessary resources, et cetera, to be able to put it down. We always have solutions for everything. Uh, we just need the will and the and and the impetus and then the understanding that it's our natural resources, you know, and that it's for all of our benefit to have cheetahs in the world or auto wildlife crime in the world is nice. But a lot of time you also need that just consumer push of companies, just from consumers to tell them, look, this is a new generation. This is not acceptable for us anymore. I think also that's why we're trying to work so closely with the people as well to get them to realize that it's not right. The people on the ground, the people who are actually doing that, instead of slapping them and shaming them as well, obviously they're doing it because they, you know, love the animal and it's kind of cool, et cetera, et cetera. Well, we're trying to also help change behavior a little bit to find out that, you know, saving these animals in our environment and our earth is really the cool thing to do these days, not to be extracting and not to be taking out and, and, you know, having them as pets for every one pet that makes it. um, They have a lifespan as Shara had said, for every one that might make it into the pet trade, probably three or four are getting, are dying, just getting there. And boy, we have a lot of examples of what that looks like in Somaliland when they are confiscated and caught. They are in horrible condition, malnourished. Um, half of them die at our feet just at being confiscated. So if one of those cubs actually makes it over into the trade, they usually are in such bad condition And the people there don't know what to do to take care of them as well. They're not professionals in taking care of a wild animal. We see those animals usually die within a year or two of being put in captivity. So with that, then, in the pet trade, 
they have fallen in love with this animal that is, you know, weak and sick, and, you know, and then it dies. And then they say, oh, well, I want another one. And then they try to go back and get another one. So that is one of the biggest problems is this fast um, rotation because the animals are in poor condition. People don't know what to do with them. And then they die. And the lifespan. So obviously you've said it of a, of a cheetah that is caught up in this illegal trade has got a lifespan usually of one to two years. So what would the lifespan of a, a cheetah in the wild be? Well, in the wild, a lifespan could be 10 to 12 years. Mm-hmm. Um, in captivity, 12 to 18 years. With proper care, obviously. environment, <laughs> right. Like Cheetah mm-hmm. Conservation Fund in Namibia, yeah. um, our yeah. cats here are, again, they are orphan cats. They've come from the wild. They've come through due to um, human wildlife conflict initiatives or where a farmer decided, gee, I'd like to have a cheetah as a pet too. And they're confiscated by our government here in Namibia. And here are cats in Namibia living to 16 to 18 years. But remember my background going back 45 years is best care of cheetahs in the world. You don't know that, but that's what Cheetah Conservation Fund is. We care about all aspects of the cheetah. And um, one of the things that we have done over the years, because we have a a rescue center here in Namibia for the last 30 years, uh, our animals are baseline best health care, exercise, large enclosures. And we are trying to help share that with people around the world who uh, are in zoos, who are caring for the animals or accredited facilities. We don't want animals like the cheetah to be put into facilities that are not appropriate. And people don't know how to take care of them. The right diet, the right, you know, minerals, calcium, uh, nutrients that they need and exercise. Mm-hmm. So something that people quite commonly ask when I post on the CCF social media is why can't these cubs be returned to the wild? And why is why is it that they, they these cheetahs are kept in captivity? And obviously, I know that there's lots of reasons, but could you share some of those? Yeah, well, the, the big thing, and I get this question all the time. I mean, every time I give a talk, and you know I talk, uh, you know, around the world, and it it's an awareness that most people don't understand. Why can't they put them back out in the wild? Well, how much wild is left? out here. And there isn't a lot of wild left. We got loss of habitat, one of the biggest problems for the cheetah, and loss of prey. So throughout most of the areas where cheetahs are found in 23 countries, with these 31 populations that are out here, they're struggling. And the human population growth occurs. Cheetahs are an animal that don't do well in protected game reserves. So 80% of all the cheetahs remaining are found outside of protected areas where they're then in conflict with humans and their livestock. So where can we put these animals back out into the wild? And then what steps are involved in this? Now, of course, this has been a lot of our research here in Namibia, going back to my early research, you know, 40 years ago, in you know, what steps would be involved in rehabilitating a cheetah and how do you go about doing it? Cheetahs do like to run after moving objects. If you've been a hand-raised an animal, like these orphans come into us, they've raised on a bottle. They don't know really what they are. Although at both of our facilities, um, Namibia and Somaliland, they see other cheetahs, but they, they don't interact the same way as wild cheetahs do. They are imprinted on humans. And from the time they've come in as a tiny baby, um, they're 
they want to be around people. And so you, you know, you put this animal back out into the wild and what it wants to do is there's people, I'll go near them and the people have goats and then they'd probably be killed or they'd see people and the people might run away from them and then, oh, let's go chase. And they might chase somebody and possibly hurt them. So those are the big issues that most people don't realize. Those are three issues that I came up with. Loss of habitat and no place for them to go. They're imprinted on humans and want to be with humans and they could catch livestock and they could be dangerous to humans as well. So that's why what we do, our baseline work for Cheetah Conservation Fund is to try to keep the wild animals in the wild. We don't want animals coming out of the wild. And in order to do that, we work with farmers. And we do this through a program called Future Farmers of Africa. We do it with children, which is our future conservationist of Africa. So we try to actually teach the farmers more about what role do they play in living with wildlife? And this is a global issue as we uh, are more and more people not even aware of how wildlife lives with us. We can teach people more about how the animals are living around us and how we can live with them. And with that, then we can have an integrated system where animals like the cheetah or other predators can actually live with the farming community. But obviously, you have to have enough grazing land. You have to protect your livestock. And that's where we have things like livestock guarding dogs here in Namibia. And we put them out with the farmers and their livestock, which protect the livestock from predators. And then you have to have enough prey, a good prey base. And for instance, here in Namibia, we're very lucky because Namibia for 30 years since its independence has actually put out a philosophy of wanting to have a wildlife economy. And so everybody does live with wildlife. It's been a 30-year process here for us to teach them not only to live with antelope, but how they too can live with cheetahs and leopards and hyenas and wild dogs and jackals. And you do this by good management of your livestock. And if you don't manage your livestock properly, then there becomes a welfare issue because if it's not properly cared for, it can get sick and predators can kill it. Now, is that the predator's problem or is it your problem as a farmer? And what we try to do is we try to get the farmers to actually take a role in the responsibility that they have with their livestock and farming in Africa, where there's also lots of wildlife. So something that's always really struck me about CCF is how involved in the community you are as an organization. So you're not an isolated organization where you don't you don't work with local communities. That every single initiative that you have over there is really, really, really community focused. And you've obviously touched on human wildlife conflict issues that there are throughout Africa like not just in Namibia that do lead to animals being killed a lot of the time and actually having like a really really bad reputation so there was obviously this really really big moment of innovation for CCF which was the introduction of the livestock guarding dogs um, which is obviously one of your most successful um, popular initiatives that you run if I'm not wrong there's a two-year waiting list for a livestock guarding dog and that's how how much people kind of want it so can you just explain what those dogs do and why it's so wildly successful well we use breed of dogs which come from turkey there's about 20 some different breeds of livestock guarding dogs and they all act a little bit differently we have selected a turkish breed of dog called the kangal or the Anatolian Shepherd. And these are a large breed of dog. 
we selected this breed because they are an independent thinking dog and they um, come from Turkey where they live in vast areas. They also have a short hair coat because where we are, it's very, very hot. Uh, many of the different European guarding dogs have a longer hair coat. And so we've not selected that. And they also are living in vast areas. So the Kangle and Anatolian, we've now brought this program in um, now, what, 27 years ago, and have been able to breed and place over, you know, about 700 dogs. We've got about 150 of them working at any given time. What we do is we place the dogs when they're at about 10 to 12 weeks of age with a herd of livestock, and the dog grows up with the livestock thinking it is its family. Um, and the dogs are actually the smart member of the family. So they act as not only a protector, they're trustworthy, but then they bark very loudly. And as they grow up, anything that comes near their herd, they bark and they basically say, I'm really big and I'm here. And if you want to come into my herd, come through me. So their predators are not wanton livestock killing animals. And a lot of people think, oh, predators, they just want to eat livestock. Well, they don't. They want an easy, quick meal. And so by having the dog there, the predators actually avoid the whole area where there's a guard dog because they bark. The predator goes, man, I could get hurt. If I get hurt, I'm not going to live. And so they avoid the area. And so that's how the dogs work. And they've been very, very, very successful. And we've been able to share our work over all these years with many other predator programs around the world. We'd like to take this up into areas like the Horn of Africa, but then we also end up with different cultural issues. And some cultures don't know the value or the use of a dog. And, you know, all the dogs that we have up probably till, I'm going to say, the last 80 years, I think most people just use dogs to work. They were working dogs. And so all of our dogs do have a job. And these dogs have been doing this for like 5,000 years. So we are actually looking at trying to utilize the dogs maybe up into the Horn of Africa as well. But there we're looking at, at culture changes. And so I think you also have to look at cultures as well as behavior of people. But the dog program has been hugely successful. With, for example, the Livestock Guarding Dog Program, when you place a dog with a farmer and that farmer, they start seeing that they're losing less livestock and that they are receiving support from CCF, that in turn gives you guys quite a good reputation amongst farmers. So you are give, you're being seen as someone who's helping not only the cheetah, but also kind of helping the local communities, because I'm assuming these dogs don't just um, bark at cheetahs. They bark at a lion and they bark at, would they, anything, <laughs> anyone or anything. <laughs> anything. Yeah. So yeah, anything that's an intruder and, and we see between a 80 to hundred percent reduction in livestock loss to all of the predators, not just cheetahs. So in the name of the cheetah, we've actually helped farmers and predators alike. And predators play a really important role in the ecosystem. So we don't want to hate predators. We want people around the world to realize that they actually are very important to the ongoing health of our systems. And when you end up with top predators, you have much more biodiversity. And today the earth needs that. So we on a, on a, global scale really um, have tried to put programs into place and work with people around the world, not just to save cheetahs, but to actually let people realize that our ecosystems need top predators and we 
can live with them. So I know you have a lot of young um, listeners, maybe out there, conservationists up and coming. And really, our job is to try to help people change their behavior, change their ways. And that's why we need to know more about how they're living, what their problems are, and how we can actually help them with solutions. So I would say that CCF is a solution-based organization. And, you know, coming back to the work that we do with our illegal wildlife trade initiatives, the work that we've done in the Horn of Africa has been training. We've done so much training with, you know, local veterinarians, with local rangers. I mean, Cheryl, why don't you talk a little bit about the um, workshops that we've just been putting on and the more that we have going on this next year so. <laughs> Yeah, we're having a lot because we need to catch up with the, all the COVID changes. Definitely. So, uh, yeah, as Laurie mentioned, CCF as a solution-based organization, we understand that the solution means that lo- the local communities, but also local professional entities, whether it's enforcement officials, veterinary doctors, et cetera, need to have the capacity, knowledge, and any tools that we can provide them to do the work right? To preserve their own environment. Because at the end of the day, that's what's needed. So we're working on many streams, uh, working closely um, through a UK uh, DEFRA grant on enforcement official training, working on legislation and working with local lawyers to uh, see what legislative gaps could there be in these countries that we work at, uh, whether it's Horn of Africa, even in Yemen, we do that, look at, at legislative gaps and then do training on how these gaps can be filled. And we also work on building networks. So bringing everyone together, doing workshops and meetings where, uh, whether it's cross-border, so Ethiopia, Somalia, Somaliland, like we would have like cross-border meetings for everyone to talk about this trade and about what's happening. And with, with that, give them the skills needed maybe to exchange information better, offer them our support and international partners support as well. And then on the other side, like we mentioned, because it's live trade, there is that unique element that you need to train veterinary doctors. So if there is a confiscation, if there is even a human wildlife conflict case where the cubs can, or is, is captured and you want to give it emergency care. And it's in a very remote place where a CCF headquarters in, is Hargeisa, the capital of Somaliland. So it would take time for it to get there. We want people, veterinary doctors in all these areas, whether it's in Ethiopia and Somalia and all these areas to know what to do. Because uh, a lot of these were trained as livestock um, veterinarians and don't know a lot about wildlife medicine. And that's fine. Obviously, also my background is, you know, veterinary doctor, you can't know everything. You need to be trained on different species and different ways of treating and handling to keep both the animal and yourself safe. So that is something that's very important to us. So, yeah, we've been basically every chance. Well, Lori has been in Somalia, and I think uh, throughout you know, this year, so many times working a lot with the locals, our local staff and the local communities and government. Uh, and we also have been uh, working very closely with Ethiopia and we're hoping in the next year to also r- rev it up and also co- go to, you know, the Arabian Peninsula countries, be able to work more closely with them too. So yeah, definitely training is a very um, important component and uh, giving all the knowledge that we have so that eventually there's uh, what we call in, you know, in grants, an exit strategy. NGOs should not be the ones, right, that keep everything afloat. It's the local people, the local communities and the local governments that need to have these um, abilities. And there is will. So that's amazing. We have willing partners within these governments. So that is amazing. 
And I'm aware that in obviously in Somaliland, there's a rescue centre there for, for these cubs and a facility that provides them with this care. How many cubs are in this facility right now and what does the future hold for them and where will they go? Because I know you're you're working on an, another facility for them at the moment. Well, right now we have 70 cheetahs and one leopard. And um, just in the last, since I think September, so in the last six months, it is January now, We've had, um, what, 17 cheetah cubs come in uh, in seven confiscations. So with 70 cheetahs, we have three full facilities. We have a nursery area, which is where our veterinary clinic is. Then we have a huge area where each one of these facilities are holding over 20 cheetahs. And we are right now working with the government to build an 800 hectare facility to put all these 70 cheetahs in. And we're trying to get it done in a year because the cats are growing. Um, The government provided the land for us, but just imagine what it takes to build not only one facility for like, we've got three right now as rescue facilities, but then to go out into the bush and then all of a sudden try to develop 800 hectares quickly for these animals to have large naturalistic enclosures. These are cats, as we said, that are not going to go back out into the wild. And so a lot of our work is to, yes, put them into good facilities. The larger part of our work that we're trying to get going is to try to stop them from coming in. And that is working with the communities, doing surveys, trying to find where they are, but working with the villagers to stop them from catching the animals. But that's what we have right now in Somaliland. And it is, you know, as Shira said, I've been coming and going from there even during COVID times regularly because it is, it's not something that this country has ever done before. It's one of the poorest countries on earth. And dealing with wildlife is not something that they have ever dealt with. It's not part of their culture. And With that, though, we've learned that they do like wildlife and they'd like more information. And we need to get that work going very, very rapidly in order to help stop more cats coming in. So it's been sort of a a catch-22 as we started getting these animals in uh, larger numbers in uh, around 2018, there was no place for the animals to go. And that's why we had to start building uh, emergency facilities. And now we're at our third emergency facility and trying to build this reserve, which is um, about an hour away from where we are based right now, out in what's going to be the first national park in Somaliland. So that first national park in Somaliland, that's going to be a really large area where there's going to be lots of cheetahs. Are there any other wildlife that will exist within that place? Well, in the the reserve, it'll be close to around uh, 56,000 hectares. And there is a lot of antelope in there as warthog, um, but not in large numbers. And so, again, the large numbers of animals, historically, Somaliland has actually a sad history because it was bombed out pretty badly. And that affected the wildlife as well as the people. So the wildlife numbers are starting to come back. And so this reserve will have small antelope, some warthog, all of the large animals are gone. So there's no more giraffe in the country, no elephants in the country after the big wars. And maybe these animals will eventually come back. But the areas that are out there 
we're trying to hope will grow more wildlife. Of course, you need a prey base in order to support a wild predator population as well. So those are things that we're trying to balance working with the government on, on looking at where the best places might be for natural reserves or best places to try to develop community-based natural resource programs, which are community-driven programs around the environment. You've been working in the cheetah space for 45 years now. How have things changed in that time? Because um, has the population continued to decline and especially in areas where you work? Like, are you seeing any numbers plateauing or anything like that? And how has the attitude towards cheetahs changed and towards wildlife? And obviously, I know that there's like much different problems throughout that time. But how have how have things changed? Well, when I started um, with cheetahs, there was thought that there might be around 35,000 cheetahs throughout around 45 countries in Africa, with still some cheetahs left in the Middle East, as well as Iran. Today, again, there's only 7,500 cheetahs left. They're only found in half the number of countries, and the population in the Middle East is gone, and that in Iran, we're down to maybe under 20 animals. So it has been drastic and dramatic. In Namibia, we've seen a stabilization of the population and have worked very, very, very closely with the farmers here. And behavior change takes about 20 years, and that's something to think about. So if we really want to make any difference, we need to jumpstart and not have that 20-year gap. And that really fits into also economic development, rural development, and alternative livelihoods with the people on the ground where the cheetahs are living. They're poor, they're rural, and and uneducated. So education plays a very key role and, and capacity of getting people on the ground to work with the rural communities working with communities to be our guardians of some of the most sacred, beautiful, amazing species that are left on earth in Africa. And that might be one of the things that the Western world might wanna look at, although this is also a continent that has the largest growing human populations and we're gonna see a plateau probably around 2050. And with that, we hopefully are gonna have alternative livelihoods because there's not going to be any land for wildlife unless we actually look at the shift. And as I said, behavior change takes about 20 years for people to actually look at changing their way of life. And I think that that's going to have to be jump-started through economics. So one of the things I think you know, Hannah, is that we've tried to look at people who eat meat. And I know a lot of the Western world is going uh, more vegetarian um, or vegan. But on the other hand, Africa is probably not going to do that immediately. And what we might want to look at is price premiums for um, good stewardship of land. And with that, we can actually support communities around that. And those might be issues that we're looking at that might be, you know, economic futures that, that, that our investment bankers might look at putting in. So again, coming back to our young conservationists that are out there listening in, Conservation really is going to have to tie into our our economics much more and businesses. Businesses, consumers can drive the way the environment's going today. It's not going to be governments. Governments need business and we need to have consumers living more gently on the earth. And so that's a broad scale. I'm saying that saving the cheetah, which is our motto, 
means changing the world. You have this real solutions focus, which is really encouraging. And you have all of these ways that you're working that are really science-based and evidence-based, but cheetah population is is still declining and has declined so rapidly. Like I wasn't aware, I wasn't actually aware of that statistic that you mentioned. How do you retain that positivity that you have? I mean, there must be times where you don't have it. <laughs> but yeah, how how do you cope? Well, I guess I do because I know there's people like Shira and like you who are out there spreading the word. We have, I mean, I'm so proud of the the interns that we've had here. We've in over 30 years here in Namibia, we've had hundreds of international and national interns that have worked with us. Now here in Namibia, many of the people are now running the government. They're, you know, members of the Ministry of Environment and rural environment and tourism. They're members of the agriculture department. And and that's what I'm seeing, I think, throughout the world. So again, having and seeing the the successes with with, you know, again, people like like Shira, who's been on the ground coming out of out of one profession and going back and getting her master's also in illegal wildlife crime work. Um, is is just great to see that that it's going to be the young people. It's going to be up to you, all of you to make those solutions and those changes happen rapidly. No, and I agree. It's well, we we say in um, uh, in behavior change when we're we are talking about behavior change a lot here is that it's not all doom and gloom. That you have to also in climate when we talk about climate change, we do know that people tend to get discouraged and that's the worst thing that can happen because if you get discouraged, you lose agency and you, you think you don't have control over what's happening when we do have control. As we said, everything is, is driven by humans. So there's also human solutions on a personal level. Of course, when you work and you see, yeah, Lori's statistic, what you said is, is horrible to hear. I remember that when I was working in a previous organization, we were organizing kind of an open day for an audience in, in, in Cape Cod. And there was a man standing there in his late nineties. And he was saying, when I was young, the population was about 2 billion people uh, of the world. Uh, the streets were a lot emptier and we had a lot more animals. And I was sure he was kidding. And then I Googled and it's true. The population of, of human, human population has grown exponentially in one person's lifetime the amount of land and forest, right? So there's a lot of reasons to to be discouraged maybe in one sense, but then we also need to remember that maybe, just maybe, and uh, I agree with Lori that behavior change is, is, takes a long time, but maybe now that we have, especially in, in Western countries, all these also new tools, so social media and influencers. So sometimes maybe we can also make everything faster in terms of behavior change. So for now, for an influencer or a person with such experience and knowledge as Lori to reach audiences across the world is a lot easier, right? And a lot faster it could be than it used to be 30 years ago. So maybe this podcast even can reach a lot more people. So maybe we can right, get more supporters and get the hope out there that there is still a way to do this. And maybe behavior change can be can happen faster. We, we see, we see it's very, very difficult, but uh, yeah, like Lori said, also my personal experience, I was already working as a veterinary doctor, you know, I could have just stepped in my corner of doing, you know, whatever uh, surgery, uh, uh, treating one animal at a time, but I was just taken aback by, by the fact that while I'm doing this and I love the hands-on work, of course, uh, who doesn't want to come to work and cuddle 
animals all day and treat them, but the world around me is, is, is changing. And if you're not going to be part of the solution, you're part of the problem. So I also personally made a lot of like a total career change, studied again, even went, you know, to junior positions, which I know that maybe some of the young conservationists now are only in their first positions, but I would encourage even people that already are in more senior ones to, to recheck themselves. Maybe it's okay to go back, change for something that you believe in, if in it, even if it does mean that you need to start over in a lot of ways. So in every level of life, whether you're 20, 30, 40, 50, you can still do a lot. We're still very hopeful, but I think it's also a, a character. Um, but that's why I think we like working together, <laughs> me and Lori. Right. But, uh, yeah. That we are a problem, but we are a solution. And what makes me keep going is when I look in the eyes of a cheetah, all they do is look at me and say, you know, you can help me. And if you don't help me, who will? And that's why I say to the rest of our Cheetah Conservation Fund team, if it's not us, who? There's hope, there's chance. And I hope that I give people hope, that I get my hope and inspiration, I think, from the cheetahs that I'm trying to say. I look at them and they say, where's my mom? Why am I here? Please help me live out in the wild. And I will do that my dying breath I'll do that <laughs> that's wonderful Tara I mean I've got goosebumps so I'm, <laughs> I think some of the oh. listeners probably will too so I mean on that super inspiring note I think we can end the interview but thank you so 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 much for joining me today listening to the earth to humans podcast this show was produced by me hannah mulvaney and our head producer serena simons the music was supplied by free music archive please follow us on facebook and instagram at earth to humans pod for extra stories about our episodes and join our patreon to support our podcast and help us to continue making it thank you